You're listening to Tango Uncorked. Yes, you are. You're listening to Tango Uncorked, and I am your host, Adam Hoopengardner. It's been a while since we've had an episode of Tango Uncorked because I've been so busy with Chico doing Tango Cafe Takeout on Wednesday nights, our live tango call-in show, interactive live music extravaganza experience. It's really, It really is a lot of fun. Um... It's really it's sad that we don't have a milonga. It's sad that nobody's dancing right now. Of course, it's tragic, it's terrible and who knows how long this is going to last. But this this uh this po- podcast, this Tango Takeout, Tango Cafe Takeout, it's been a lot of fun. We've been chatting with some really interesting people from all over the world. And you know, one thing that Tango has done for us all and one thing that I like to promote about it which is why I started this podcast to begin with is promoting all of the amazing people we get to meet through Tango and something that's happening now unfortunately when you're we're all at home being quarantined is we're not meeting new people we're we're connecting with old friends perhaps and we're we're getting close to our loved ones and and different friends maybe but new people not having access to meeting new people is is something that that uh, we do have in tango so i like to I, I would like to hope that this podcast is one opportunity that you have to connect with new people um a lot of tango teachers are doing online zoom classes and online classes of, of different natures and there's another opportunity to connect with people from all around the world chico and marcelo gutierrez and i have a class called Tang- Virtual Tango Encuentro. That was Marcelo's idea, and he involved us. He asked us to get involved, and last week we had our first class on Thursday. And it was so nice to see people that um, Chico and I go visit. We travel all the time for work. We travel to Halifax or Nebraska or to San Francisco or to Gainesville. And to see, and we, you know, we have a bond with all these wonderful communities and to see all of see to see some of them sorry um on the zoom chat from different communities but now all together it was really nice and they got to meet one another so that goes back to my point about connecting people meeting new people it's still available um we're physically distancing but we don't have to social distance and i want to make sure that's that's discussed and i just wanted to promote that idea so check us out on Wednesdays at 9.30 for Tango Cafe Takeout. This is Tango Uncorked. I'm also starting a new series. I think I'm going to call it DJ Speak. I have a DJ lecture series that I'm I'm starting next Sunday. What'll that be? April, the, uh, the end of April. The last Sunday in April. That's all I know right now because I don't have my date book. Who has a date book? I don't have my phone with me. Um... It's starting on on next. Uh, I'm wrong. It's actually Sunday, the second of May. Good thing I looked. Um, so I did a DJ lecture series through the Philadelphia Argentine Tango School. Meredith Klein reached out to me right around the time that this whole thing started. She's very um, forward thinking, and she said, "Adam, in a few weeks, I'm, I'm starting a lecture series, and in three weeks from now, I'd like you to do one." And at that time, I thought, well, in three weeks from now, we'll be back into dancing and everything will be over and this will be fine. But OK, I'll, I'll, I'll put it on my agenda. Well, three weeks passed and it's been another week and a half since. And the class was really well received. 
um, I worked really hard on it and I decided to break it into a four-part series and during my brainstorming I decided I would love to feature other prominent DJs um, inter short interviews with them so if you sign if you sign up for the class I will be sending homework study guides after the classes and some of which will be including short interviews with some DJs who I find to be very important and knowledgeable in their fields. Um, I'll have more details on that soon, but there'll be postings on Facebook and on my website, Adam and Chico, our website, adamandchicotango.com. Speaking of Chico, she is doing some classes. She's doing a Milonga workout class and a stretching and strengthening class Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7. They're limited to 10 people. And they're all filling up fast, so good for her. I know that Hernan Prieto, he has a he had a lecture, uh, his Tango History lecture series that he was doing, and hopefully he'll continue with that. That's actually one of the DJs I will be interviewing. Um, what else is going on? Is everybody surviving? My day to day, I wrote that down. It's to talk about. Not too interesting. I try to get, uh, Sharon and I, we take a walk every evening. They've been increasing in length. Now they're sometimes between an hour and two hours. Sometimes a little shorter if it's raining. Um, trying to maintain some sort of daily structure, but some days are better than others. I do my two to five mile bike ride. I try to do some yoga. Uh, how's your day? What are you doing today? Anything interesting? Well, call us on Wednesday and tell us all about it. Speaking of which, next Wednesday we have Pablo. I'm going to butcher his last name, but he's a piano player. He's going to be playing for us. And um, I'm not sure who else is on the show, but every week we feature guests, and it's wonderful. Today on this show, my friend Oscar Zorija, one of these fascinating people that I got to meet through Tango, uh, he sits down and chats with us, and part of the reason I asked him to do so was because he got a position as a professor of economics at the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. And when he came back after settling there last spring, or last fall, sorry, he was telling us about the culture of working at a, at a military academy and how fascinating that was, and I just thought, that's a subculture, sort of like tango, I know nothing about. I have some relatives in the military, and I think my cousin went to the Naval Academy, as he is a Navy man, um, but I have no idea what it's like. So Oscar has a lot of fun little stories of his experience starting there. He got to, you know, it's one thing to get your PhD, and now you're an accomplished professor. Well, you're a new professor, and you go, and you set up shop, but now he's got to learn all sorts of new things about how to operate and manage and live and work within this culture. Um, and it's very interesting. So we talk about that. We talk about his tango life. And then, of course, we talk about economics because he is a Ph.D. in economics. And um, and I don't know. I don't know. I don't I know not much about it. I do not know much about it, um, except that we all live in it every day. And lastly, you'll notice that there's two breaks in the episode, because when I started this, this is the first episode I've done through Zoom. And I was led to believe that you only get 40-minute increments, which is not true if you're only working or speaking with one person. So I was cutting our discussions down to less than 40 minutes. So it's like a three-parter. 
first part is about his stories of the uh, academy. The second part is about his stories of tango, and the third part is, is uh, his his knowledge of economics. So I'll break in to sort of just segue the parts, but they're a little they're a little abrupt. <laughs> Um, and without further ado, I hope you enjoy the show. I don't think I forgot anything. Come find us on adamandchicotango.com. Come find us on our Podbean podcast. Uh, we do. We are accepting donations to help support us through this time. Uh, that's part of the reason we're doing all of these online courses and podcasts. So adamandchico.gmail.com via Venmo or PayPal. Um, you can send $5, whatever, $10. Some people send more, some people send less, and we appreciate it all very much. All right, so enjoy this show with Oscar Zorilla. spending your time these days naked uh naked one of the great things of not having to uh <laughs> go to work to do work is that i don't have to get dressed <laughs> so as long as you're not on a video like you are now you're good basically so so we started uh classes on friday on uh right video classes and so i have to get dressed for those just from the, but that's about just it. from the waist up, right? <laughs> oh, so I thought about that, right? I was like, well, maybe just the waist up. But I was like, if forever, for any reason, I have to stand up <laughs> or <laughs> anything, I'd uh, I'd better be uh, not just fully dressed, but uh, formally dressed. So like, I, I'll put khakis on and a shirt. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, but no underwear. That's good. Um, I don't need to get dressed. So you were over a while ago talking to us during our barbecue about your transition to Annapolis and your new position. And it was a really interesting story. So I wanted you to tell our listeners all about what it's like to be an economics professor at, for the military. Well, so I feel like when I was telling you that, that was, what, six months ago when I was just getting started? Mm-hmm. So I feel like at that time, everything seemed uh, surprising and new. But now I don't – now I've been doing it for six months, so now I don't remember what was so like, oh, my God, that was super interesting. Well, I was going <laughs> to actually ask that you put yourself back in my backyard. Put yourself back in that state of mind that this was a new fascinating – uh journey you're you were talking about how first of all you have to you're a civilian because a lot of people don't even know the structure of how these things work correct yeah, so that's what was the, fascinating to us so actually what's what's interesting about this is that because right so actually before world war ii there was no such thing as the department of defense right there was the department of the army there was the department of the navy there was the, right and these were much more separate right and when when these things were you know, brought together, um, like you still have technically under the Department of Defense, a Department of the Navy and a Secretary of the Navy and a Secretary of the Army and a Secretary of the Air Force. Okay. So we have three service academies 
right? One for the Air Force in, in Colorado Springs, uh, West Point, which uh, they call the Point, mm -hmm. and then the Naval Academy, which we call the Yard. And you're at the Point? At the Yard. Right? You're at the Yard. Okay, you're at the Naval, at the Naval Academy. Academy. Okay. Uh, the Point is in New York. Right? Uh, so what's interesting about this is because these are under each of the different departments, they actually run very differently. Hmm. So at West Point, the vast majority of the faculty are actually military. They have very, very few civilian faculty. Mm -hmm. um, at the Air Force Academy, I found out recently, they, they don't have uh, a tenure system. So it's really not like a university. So they, they'll, they'll have instructors, but there is no such thing as like tenure professors. So it's from the point of view, at least of, of a professor professionally, it's not really a university. Um, the Naval Academy is the one that is most, and they do this on purpose, like a college, right? Why do they, they have do this a tenure on system? I don't know. I think when they decided to do this, they did, and then they haven't changed, right? Okay. But half of us are civilian, half of the, of the instructors are civilian faculty. And for mm -hmm. us, it's like a, it's like a, university we have tenure we have a tenure track we have expectations of research um and it's very much as any um as it would be under any college but then the other half are military mm -hmm. um and obviously for them it's there's there's no such thing as tenure they're here under orders right and that's just part of their uh, other command. The one exception that they do have is that they have this uh, thing called permanent military professors. And these are members of the Navy who request uh, and are granted uh, permission to uh, get higher degrees. So they'll get either master's or for the permanent military professors, as opposed to the junior ones, they'll actually get a PhD. Um, and then they will see the end of their service to the Navy as professors. Um, so th this is this won't be a three-year thing. This is the the rest of their career, uh, and the Navy pays for everything. So they go in, they do their their PhD, uh, and we just got a we actually just got a new permanent military professor. So he just finished his PhD and he will finish his career. He's a commander. Uh, he will now teach economics. Okay. Um, so there's. I want to keep going with this for a while, but then there's the other side of you, which is, well, there's many sides, but then the other side is the whole economic side. Um, but I remember when you were here, we were fascinated by how progressive the military is in terms of gender identification, um, mental health issues, um, how, they, how they have to dress in class was another big thing. Yes. Um, how so, they treat you, how they salute you every morning. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah. So and the, all the protocols the things, that you had to learn, which were, which were extremely fascinating. Yeah. So the, yeah, I remember the, one of the things that I, that was uh, surprising in a, in a really good way was when I went through, um, you know, the first week of training. And so there's, you know, tons of meetings and, and uh, tons of workshops and things you have to go to. So even though 
half of the faculty are civilians and half of the faculty are military, uh, right? Civilians have tenure track. So civilians are gonna be here for, you know, 10 years, 15 years, a very, very long time. Whereas the military are rotating, this is just part of their, uh, of their active duty. So they will have three-year posting. So during orientation for the faculty, even though the faculty is half and half, most of the new faculty will in fact military because they have a lot more turnover. So you walk into the room for you know the first day, and obviously all of the military faculty are in uniform since you know they're on duty. Mm-hmm. Civilians uh, are obviously not, but you walk into this auditorium and it's just a sea of uniformed uh, personnel. And then you know you have the first couple of days. The meetings are all with uh, the civilian leadership. But unlike a regular university, you have civilian leadership, and then you have kind of parallel to it, uh, the military leadership. And then, of course, ultimately, the head of the, of the Naval Academy, the superintendent, is in fact uh, a vice admiral in the Navy. Okay. So he's a, a pretty high up guy, right? This is a military base. This is his command. So he comes in the last day of orientation to talk to the, to the new faculty. And, you know, when a vice admiral walks in, they'll call attention on deck and every single person in that room or, you know, every single person in uniform, which is 90% of the people in that room, stand up as if they had been shocked, like in their seats. <laughs> so and you feel still, and the civilians have no idea what's going on. So <laughs> Do you feel compelled to stand up? I'm assuming. Well, you stand. Of course you stand. I mean, but not only that, if you don't know what's about to happen, you might be like sipping some coffee and suddenly everyone stands <laughs> up and you spill coffee everywhere. So I had been warned that this was going to happen. They said, look, he's going to walk into that room and somebody is going to announce that he's walking into that room because he's a vice admiral. Mm-hmm. They will say, attention on deck and everybody is going to stand up and they're going to spring up. This is not a, like they're kind of standing up. This will be instantaneous. <laughs> so I knew this was going to happen. So that morning, what I did, did I was like, I'm not standing gonna... up really fast. Well, to not practice standing up. I just, uh, when I came into the auditorium, I just stood at the back of the room. I was like, I'm already standing up. I don't have to worry about this. <laughs> I'm an economist. I'm a forward looking guy. I was like, I, I'm not going to be able to stand up as fast as they are. I don't want to be caught <laughs> drinking coffee and then spill coffee everywhere. So you know what? I'm just going to stand at the back of the room. Very uh, smart. And sure enough, the guy walks in, someone says attention on deck and people just. And you're like, feet. you guys are slow, man. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of soldiers are you? <laughs> Lame. Not only that, of course you get up, you see a couple of the civilians who for whatever reason uh, weren't told, or even if they were told they were caught off guard and you see them we're like, Oh, what's happening? Crap. I got to stand. <laughs> Oh man. Um so and and that that thing of you know So this is the last day of, of orientation, is that correct? Yeah. And of, he comes in and so this is the scenario that you're describing. Yeah, this and is he, so- you know, he walks in, he says at ease, people sit, but this idea of right of deference to authority, this is something that then goes on in the classroom. So whenever I'm about to start class, uh I actually pick a student at the beginning of the semester and they're the section leader and I will look at them and they will call attention on deck. Mm-hmm. And when the student calls attention on deck, no matter what they're doing, they will stand up and they will stand still until I tell them that they can sit down. I could not say that 
if I wanted to and give class and they would stand there hmm. the whole class. They, they will not sit or move until I tell them uh, yeah. to sit. And obviously for the military faculty, they, they all do it. We're supposed to do it as a civilian faculty. Everyone's supposed to do it. Uh, but uh, some civilians feel uncomfortable doing it and some don't do it. Um, hmm. The uh, head of division, for example, for our division is a colonel in the Marines. He's the highest ranking Marine on the yard. And when he was talking to us, he said, look, I know that some of you feel uncomfortable doing it. I know that some people don't do it. Uh, but first of all, it's the rule, so you should be doing it. Um, he was like, and second of all, you may not understand why we are you know, making a big deal of this. And if you're a civilian, you might think this is silly or, or whatever. He said, but you know, for us, uh, you know, discipline has to be a habit because when you're under fire, that has to be second nature. You have to and be disciplined. chain of command as well. Exactly. And, and so, you know, for us, it's a thing that they have to be able to, to tap into this sense of discipline and, and chain of command instantaneously because that's what's going to save them when they're actually under fire. And I would think that so if you have you don't to do it. do it. Yeah, I would think if you're not doing it, you're kind of leaving them in a weird spot because they're so used to it. Yeah, I actually yeah. love it because one of the I things I mean, not you specifically, it, but one, one professor. Yeah, yeah. Or no, so I do it. And I actually love it because one of the things that's really nice about it is that uh, the start of class is super clear. There's no like, okay, guys, let's get started. People are on their phones, right? It's, there, there's no ambiguity as to when class begins. You just, I look at, at the section leader. You know, I nod, they go, uh, attention on deck, they all stand, and class has started. So it, it's actually, for the point of view of teaching, <laughs> it's really nice. There's, yeah. this is the beginning of class. Let's, let's get started. Um, but, but this idea of, of authority and, and respecting, right, the chain of command, I mean, it's pervasive in everything. So I've had students come to my office uh, for, you know, office hours, extra help. And I'll be sitting uh, and they will just stand there. They will like come in to talk to me and they won't sit unless I ask them to sit. They'll just stand hmm. like in perfect posture. And I look at them like, you know, this, there's, a, there's a seat right there. You, you know, you want to sit down? And they'll be like, oh, thank you, sir. Um, and has, this a, ha, has that kind of perpetuated its way into how you behave there? I mean, do you, are you still like super chill or do you try to at least, are, are, you know, because sometimes that can influence for around certain behaviors, it can influence our behaviors. Are you so, like soldier sit? No, right? Like I'm a civilian, and <laughs> no, I have I no interest in being in being in playing soldier, right? If I wanted to do that, I would have you know done that. So I, I certainly have no desire to. They have enough soldiers around them, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and and enough people reminding them uh, who is in charge. So I, I act as if I right, were at any other school. Mm -hmm. I, um, it's gotta be nice to just have such well-behaved students. Yeah, so I, I, 
I would imagine if you're teaching at like Hunter Cuny or something and the kids yes, are like so, 18, 19 so years old and they're yes. all just like, what's up, prof? You know? Yes. So obviously <laughs> the discipline is right. They, they, the, the least respectful thing they call me is professor, right? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> sir is the, uh, right. That's the uh, baseline, right? They'll say yes, sir. No, sir. Even in their emails, right? The email will say, sir. And, right. Or, you know, Professor Zerilla. So, yeah, they're, they're very, they're very disciplined. Uh, but ultimately, they're still, right, teenagers and they're yeah, early 20s, and, and that yeah. doesn't change. So, yeah. so you still have to deal with, you know, stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and you still have to deal with, right, just because they can't overtly do things uh, that they might do at other schools doesn't mean that they don't find other ways, right, to Mm -hmm. disrupt it. So two other things you mentioned, and I I mean, you mentioned more, but uh, two other things that I wanted to talk about first were the the way they they, um, identify gender, right? Or it was not gender, it was uh, status or, or position. You have to address one as their position, correct? What do you mean? You can't say, you mentioned that, you know, when you're walking, you see colleagues in the hallway, they have to address you as professor, correct? Well, so, or, so or something this like is, this, right? this is from the point of view of the military, right? Yeah, so yeah. it's this idea that because this is so ingrained, right? And obviously that's, you know, kind of the whole uh, way that that organization works, that, you know, it's ranks matter, right? Mm-hmm. Because you have to do whatever somebody from a higher rank tells you, and that's just the way militaries work. So this is just so ingrained in the culture that everybody, you know, when I was meeting them, so for example, the Colonel, who's the head of, of our division, he, you know, he's a Colonel in the, in the U S Marine Corps. This guy is, you know, a badass. He's, you know, commanded troops in Afghanistan, commanded troops in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember when I first met him, he addressed me as Dr. Zarilla and right, it just felt so weird <laughs> but like for them the titles are important right it's like no you're a doctor so you call you doctor um which is like it was just so bizarre and one of my colleagues uh from the econ department so she was uh, in orientation and right we're both starting up we're both in orientation and every time that i referred to her i would refer to her uh, by her first name but every she's time she a civilian, me, correct? No, she's a. She's oh no, a, she's she's uh, in the military. Okay, she's, yeah, yeah. Um, but she was okay with that. Well, but so so this is this is kind of what happened. Uh, we're in orientation. I'm calling her by her first name, mm-hmm. and I'm referring to her by her, her first name. Uh, and one of the things, at least, my experience with the people I've I've dealt with in in the in the yard who are military is that they first of all understand that we're civilians and so don't expect us to like understand the ranks and and know that like clearly i'm a commander and clearly my captain and and whatever but on a side note you did have to learn all the significations so i kind of just learned them because like they're referring to each other in this way right but they they're not they don't get angry or upset or anything right Mm -hmm. they don't expect you to know this because why would you but I'm, i'm talking to you know, uh, I'm talking to her or talking about her, referring to her by her first name. Every time she talked to me or referred to me, she would talk to me as doctor. 
And so this went back and forth for, you know, like the first day. And then by the second day, I just went up there and I was like, should I be calling you? Uh, I don't remember her rank anymore. I think she's like a lieutenant commander or something like that. I was like, should I be calling you lieutenant commander? Uh, like, are, are you just being polite but really pissed that I'm not referring to you by your, by your title? Uh, and she said, no, 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 it's, it's fine. And then I was like, okay, well, then why don't you refer to me by my first name? <laughs> I was like, because it's really uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, and she was like, well, because, because you're a doctor and you're a professor here and I'm just an instructor. And I was like, okay, but are you teaching uh, midshipmen? Yes. I was like, am I teaching midshipmen? Yes. I was like, okay, we're colleagues. I, would, I was like, I would really, really like to be able to be on a first name basis with my colleagues. Obviously, if that's a problem, right, and you want me to call you, you know, lieutenant commander or whatever, I, I can do that. I just, I'm just trying to figure out, right? I was like, yeah, this yeah, is like, obviously not my term, and I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I was like, oh, no, 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 That's, you know, you can, it's perfectly fine that you call me a person. I was like, then please, please, please call me Oscar. <laughs> I was like, please call me Oscar because we're colleagues, and it's just, it, it, it feels super weird, and, and. And what she did the type of relation oh, she started calling me oscar oh, okay like, good. I, right i don't want to <laughs> be talking to my colleagues and, and for them to be saying dr zarilla what do you think it's like yeah no <laughs> um imagine us at a department meeting just like referring to each other by our titles that that's that's just awesome um but it's interesting but then the difficulty comes because when i refer uh, to them, when I'm talking to my students, I have to make sure that that huh. goes through, which I probably would be more careless if I were at a civilian college, right? I might not call my college professor and that wouldn't be such a big deal. Right. But here I'm very cognizant, right? That I mm -hmm. say, well, you should go talk to Professor X or you should go talk to Commander um, McKee or technically, you know, Lieutenant Commander and, McKee. Or, or and whatever. these people that, like you're, you're talking about, you're referring to are, like, as you said, there's some some badass, oh, yeah. like some motherfuckers that have really been around and done some shit. This is something I actually really, really liked about uh, and still enjoy uh, is that it's really nice to see people who are very impressive uh, in an aspect in a field that I know nothing of, mm -hmm. right? I've, I've spent my entire life in academia. And so I know what, what it means to be impressive in that realm. Mm -hmm. um, and these guys are very, very impressive and also experts, but in a totally different realm. Right? Mm -hmm. But they're also at the top of their game, given what they're doing, right? Uh, a commander in the U.S. Marines <laughs> yeah. probably knows it's probably one of the world's foremost experts on war, right? Right, right. These guys are not... Uh, dicking around and are incredibly impressive people. Uh, so it's really cool to just learn from them, right? Like I've, the, the conversations I've had and the stories that they, that they tell you just like, wow, you are. Really and you're, you're, you're having this moments outside of the, of the school of, of the academy, right? Yeah. Right. So for example, we have a department happy hour okay. every once a month. And then that and then, there people can act a little less, I mean. But that's the thing with us, right? Like I know them, right? And of course, in, you know, at work, they're in their uniform, right? But that doesn't mean that the way that we interact even at work 
isn't as colleagues, right? So I still call them by their first name. And, and my, the way that I have met them is as, as my colleagues, even though, of course, I know that they are uh, members of the military. The first time I went to happy hour, uh, the department vice chair, who's a lieutenant commander, showed up in civilian clothes. And so I, like, I saw him and I did a double take. I had never seen him in civilian clothes. <laughs> and, and his reply was like, you know we're people too. I was like, no, I know. <laughs> it's just that. <laughs> right. And this... he's super nice. And the thing yeah. is, he's super nice. And he's always been super nice. So I've never, yeah. never had an interaction with him where it felt like he was like, well, I'm a lieutenant commander in the Navy and, and you need to yeah. uh, make him. He never is not like that at all. Super, super cool guy. Um, but it was just like, I've just, you know, I'd never seen him in civilian oh, clothes. Oh, you see so people out of context, you know, it's like yeah, seeing somebody outside of a milonga. You're like, oh, yeah, that's what you look like in a t-shirt. It's like that scene in Pulp Fiction when Samuel Jackson and John Travolta are like wearing t-shirts in, in, in the backyard. Exactly. After the exactly. Whole film, and you're like, you're like uh, no, yeah, you're not supposed to be dressed like that. Yeah, it's exactly like that. That's, that's a perfect, uh, that's a perfect example. not go with your haircut, man. It's exactly that. <laughs> Um, and, but it's really cool because I've met them as people. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I, I understand where they are in the organization and, and, and their title and everything. Uh, and I certainly enforce this, uh, importance of rank and everything when I'm interacting with them in front of students or, or when I'm, yeah, for sure. uh, referring to them with the students, but you know, with them, I, they're just uh, really cool people that, I, that I've met who are, have done really, really cool things. And So it's cool because you're, you know, you've you got your PhD, you've, you've finished Columbia, you're an expert in your field, but then you go to this, you could, you could have gone to, you know, many different places to teach, but because you've gone to this academy, this Naval Academy, you're, you're learning a whole new set of experiences yeah. in a whole, you know, it's like a whole nother level of, of professionalism, as you said it. So you're, 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 you're not like at the bottom. I don't want to say that of course, but you're, you're joining an, uh, uh, you know, you're learning a whole nother set of systems and principles that, that um, it just probably makes it much more fascinating than if you were to go teach you know at another school and then you're just another staff member professor and, yeah which exactly. is still interesting in its own right i'm sure but this is another layer of, of fascination no this is just an entire it's 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 not just a professional experience right it's a life experience you're mm -hmm. doing this this totally different thing um the the other thing that's different and actually a student asked me this last semester uh they said well what what is it like you know teaching us versus you know when you were teaching students at columbia um, and one of the things that definitely feels different, and I certainly think about that when I'm teaching, is that we are training the next generation of officers of, in the Navy. Hmm. Some of my students might become admirals. Some, you know, one of my students might become the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Wow. Yeah. Um, so there's a sense of of responsibility right and it's like um you know obviously it's not like oh it, it all falls on me <laughs> obviously not yeah I, yeah but, but to the extent that i am interacting with it and i'm teaching them right i have the sense of you guys are going to be officers in the navy uh 
you guys are the future leaders of the Navy, then I should think about that, right? Mm -hmm. And that should be in the back of my mind when I am teaching you. And I should be, you know, I should strive to make sure that our armed forces have officers who are, you know, capable and critical thinkers and intelligent, right? And, and this matters in a way that I definitely never thought of uh, when I was teaching at Columbia. Like, what's the worst thing that can happen if one of the students at Columbia is just an idiot? Like, okay, well, nothing. <laughs> uh, a shitty officer in the Navy uh, might potentially... Uh, <laughs> yeah, that could be catastrophic for some people. Yeah, be catastrophic in the same way that an, an excellent officer, right, who, you know, goes on to become an excellent admiral, who goes on to become, a, you know, excellent chairman of the Joint Chiefs or, or whatever. Uh Right, that's that's an asset that is an asset to all of us, um, and so I definitely think about that when I'm when I'm teaching them in a way that I didn't think about at all when I was teaching civilians. And then you also mentioned how they they're very uh, aware and conscious of I don't want to call it it's not mental illness, but um, how how they how did you put it? It was like. You know, no, they, so, they'll treat it's like in the movies we 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 see this like exactly you know this I this absurd sense of like Full Metal Jacket like Joe, you're a piece of shit and all this, but you were mentioning how they're very conscious of 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 making sure everybody is like in a very good state of mind and a very healthy state of mind. Yes, so so they care a lot about student welfare. This was one of the things that I I remember I was talking to you guys yeah. when I came back that I was uh, shocked in the best way possible that. When we were going through orientation, there was so much emphasis on the welfare of the students and, and so much emphasis on the fact that bullying and discrimination of any kind was totally unacceptable and that we needed to make sure that that was clear to everybody, that there was no reason why any person who has you know, decided to join the armed forces and, and made this commitment uh, to their country at such a young age should feel bad for having made that decision or should should feel like they don't belong in the armed forces for any any reason mm -hmm. um, i mean i'm I'm assuming it happens in in this you know not as it does anywhere in life it'll still happen occasionally uh, of on course the side happen, and, right? you know you're gonna have assholes everywhere but the fact that institutionally there was such a big deal made of this Right, that was a good thing to, to see. Yeah, for right? sure. That they they could have, and that it didn't feel like lip service, right? Because it, it it could have felt like, okay, uh, so one of the things, for example, that that could have happened is, so you know, don't ask, don't tell gets repealed in what twenty eleven, or twenty twelve was it? And and it they could have it could have felt something like, okay, well, this got repealed, we hate it, but we just have to tell you that it's fine, right? And it could have come across that way of just, them just check, you know, ticking boxes, being like, well, it's the law now, and whatever but we think this was stupid. And it was not like that at all, right? It was, and, and the vice admiral himself, actually, when he gave his, his welcome speech, he went on like a five minute detour. Think about this. This is the first time he is uh, talking to the new faculty. Mm -hmm. This is actually also his first year. So this is one of the first times he has addressed uh, any large group of faculty at the academy. And basically, after saying hello, welcome, he immediately lunges into this uh, basically subspeech talking about sexual harassment. 
and how sexual harassment, and I, I remember clearly, he said, this is a cancer and we will get rid of it. He was like, it is not acceptable to have any type of sexual harassment for any reason to any member. And like, but he was just so, I mean, in no uncertain language, hmm. um, he made this very big deal about how this was totally unacceptable. Not just that it was unacceptable, but that, but that it's a problem, that it weakens the Navy, that it weakens everything around it, that, it, that it's just uh, this incredibly insidious problem that, that you know, destroys so much. Um, and so, right, I'm sitting there, I've been here for, you know, three or four days. And like you said, you have this view that the armed forces are, well, deal with it, you know, suck it up and, and move yeah, on. Yeah, man up or whatever. Yeah, yeah basically man up and, 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 and deal with it. And here we have, you know, the, uh, a vice admiral in the Navy <laughs> saying uh, sexual harassment is still unacceptable. And uh, this is not a place where there will be any victim blaming. And this is not a place where you question uh, victims coming forward and, and question their story. And uh, no, this is just simply totally intolerable, totally unacceptable. Uh, there is no reason why anybody either in the staff or the student body or anybody at all should feel like this is an unsafe place. Um, and so just all of that um, was... Probably really encouraging. Yeah, it was just really nice. You don't know what you're, you know, you don't know exactly what you're getting into when you, when you, when you decide to you know, accept the, the job and, and go there and move your life there, you know? Yeah. Um, so that that was that was really nice. Uh, so that's our first interruption. We we had a little chitter chitter chatter, but uh, following that, but I cut it there because it was a little nonsensical. So we're gonna we're gonna start our second portion, where Oscar takes us down the wonderful long road of his tango journey. Please enjoy. So, two more things I wanted to talk to you about. They'll probably be quick. One is your life story, and the other one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we don't have to go that crazy. Um, well, one is about tango, since this is a tango podcast, sort of. And the other one would be what led you to pursue the wonderful and useless world of studying economics. <laughs> <laughs> I like that look. <laughs> so. Uh, you started on the West Coast, no? Tango, that uh, is. Nope. Mano and I started, uh... Oh, wait, no, you started here in New York. Yeah. Yeah, you started, started in the park with Sergio. Yeah. So you're new. I'm getting you mixed up. Never mind. Yeah, so you were at the park with, with Manu. Central Park, Basically. right? Uh, Washington Square. Washington Square. Okay. And what happened? So actually, no, it was, it, it was like a, 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 a two start. So Manu had taken like one or two classes when he was like 16 in Argentina. Mm -hmm. So he knew like, he knew what a noche was, for example, right? So he knew what things were. He just didn't know how to do any of them or he mm -hmm. didn't remember very well. Uh, but he, I think he, one day, like, I think it was our second, second year. Yeah, it would have been second year. 
uh, the summer of our second year, we were riding our bikes down uh, the west side and uh, on a weekend. And uh, is that Volvo Tango, right? When they, the, the mm, one on yeah, the pier? I believe that's... So we were... We were Jam, but it was probably Volvo, yeah. We were having... So that pier, at the end of that pier, the land end of that pier, there's a bar. So we stopped for a beer and then we just walked down the pier and there were people dancing tango. And we were just kind of watching. And so I think that was technically the first time I danced tango. Okay. You can call it dancing. And Manu was like, oh, let me show you a few steps, like off, off to the side. Uh-huh. Uh, but this was sort of the end of summer, blah, whatever. And then we, we both talked about doing it. So the following year, I just went on Google the following summer and I said, there's got to be tango in the park. I was like, in the summertime, there's everything in the park. There's Shakespeare in the park. There's yoga in the park. There's probably yeah. orgy in the park. Like you could type orgy in the park. And I'm sure there's a park in New York City where there's orgy in the park, right? Every Thursday or something like that. So I literally was like, I'm going to put tango in the park. There's something will pop up. And sure enough, tango in the park, uh, Washington Square Wednesdays or whatever it was. So we just went down. Uh, and Sergio was doing it. And he saw us and like, it was immediate. He was like, you two, I'm going to teach you how to dance tango and you're going to pick up a lot of girls. <laughs> <laughs> and then he right, he just told us, he said, come to the school uh, and you guys will basically just do gender balance. You won't have to pay. I'll teach you how to, you know, I'll train you, but you'll have to dance with whomever. Right. right. Leader, um, follower, whatever. Yeah. Whatever, exactly. Which ended up being great because they yeah, were both cool. things at the same time and everything. He was like, if we need yeah. followers, you will follow. If we need leaders, you will lead. You will do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you re- is that how you reconnected with Tiffany? No. So like Tiff. I mean, you knew that she was in New York, but you had. And we hung out actually. So, okay. so it was, it was more of, that's kind of how she got back into tango. Oh, okay. Right, because I kept so when when this you're right happened, now she I, started, I remember she told me the story harassing as well. her and I was like hey yeah. Tiff because the she first was going time I had to, to yeah. learn tango was actually when I was in high school huh. and I had mentioned it to Tiffany and she took me to a place down in Boston hmm. but right I was in a boarding school mm-hmm. so the the thing of going down every week and take like it, it was just too much and I had right too much stuff that i was doing anyway and so just the hassle of of getting down there to take tango classes it didn't happen but she actually took me to a dance studio in boston once um and we just it was just like okay this is this is too much so that was you know like whatever however many years ago 15 years ago Mm -hmm. and then right i went to college i did other things rowing and all that other stuff um and then I actually started on doing it uh, once we started, uh, once I was in grad school. And then when we started taking class at Sergio's, I just kept telling her every time we hung out or we talked, I said, hey, Tiff, you should come, you should come, you should come, until uh, she actually met them at my birthday party. Okay. Where we started classes on like, I don't know, July, my birthday's in August. Mm-hmm. And a bunch of them came uh, to our place uh, for my birthday and Tiff was there. And so that's when she met Sergio. Okay. 
and she well, kind of cool. got back into the into the tangle thing. Yeah, from yeah. there. That's cool. Um, what? I I get the feeling that you're in the tangle more for the social aspect. Why do you say that? Because you seem to have fun no matter what. <laughs> like like most people are so into tango for dancing that it'll ruin their month if they go to one milonga and they don't get danced with by like at all or by one person they've been waiting for or if they get you know they feel like somebody was rude whatever yeah, yeah. Uh, like their whole all their eggs are in one basket and i'm not saying you don't enjoy dancing i'm saying that in my experience being around you and one of the reasons I enjoy when you're there so much is that you're there to have fun and for you part of the fun or a lot of the fun is just hanging out and enjoying your time there. Yeah. I mean, so I, I really like dancing tango and I love tango and I got into it for the, I mean, the, and, and I think I got into it and then stayed into it because of, of what it is. And it's actually in many ways very similar to rowing. Uh, because it's it's really about mastering very simple body movements, but really, really mastering them. Mm-hmm. Right? Being able like to very efficient. Exactly, you have to be exactly that. It's it's an efficient thing. It's it's move efficiently with your body, and the movements are not necessarily crazy or ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> they're actually fairly simple, and certainly when you look at them, they they're but. But doing them incredibly well and efficiently is is actually a very very hard thing, and and I love that, and I I actually think that some of the, of the very same reasons why I really love rowing uh, happen to be the same reasons that uh, I really love tango. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that I I think that has to do not so much of like I I like tango because of the social aspect or the dancing aspect. I think part of it has to do with I just I don't have a like a one track mind mm-hmm. and so it's I mean it's kind of one of the reasons why for example I started Tango and got so into it while I was in the middle of doing a PhD right? so most PhD students don't do that most PhD students <laughs> do this thing for six years and and like uh and then don't do anything else yeah, that's true. um uh or to the extent that they have hobbies they certainly don't you know, to learn a, a whole new craft yeah, like, that's and, and get so into it exactly right where i was like i remember when i started doing it and i got really into it i was going like out dancing almost every night of the week um so yeah like like tango doesn't have to be one thing or another right i okay, i yeah. enjoy the dancing it's also why i i won't go to milongas where i wouldn't where i would only have fun if i danced hmm. right because like, it's not like I'm going to go and then I have to dance. And if I don't dance, this has been awful or, or the other way, right. Where like, I have to go and I have to make sure that every single uh, person there, I absolutely like love, because if I don't hang, right. Like it's a balance. It's a, it's a bit of everything. Right. So yeah. I want to go to places where it's right. And I think that's kind of why when I started, you know, dancing tango and everything, like we became friends and I like, right. Just started hanging out with you guys. Cause it was like that. It was like, go to tango cafe, we can hang out, we can dance. There's, there's, uh, yeah. and, and either is enjoyable and they're, they're all fun. And, um, but I, yeah, I, I, I just, what's the point of having this one track mind of like, if I don't dance tango, right. If I don't get this tanda, 
I yeah, like my night is ruined. Like, no, I I agree. I don't I don't understand. I've I've been there. I think, in in certain moments where I'll like feel some sort of pressure to do that. Maybe it's because I go to a place and there is nobody there I really want to hang out with. And then I'm like, well, I want to dance, but then, you know, whatever. So, you know, you're just kind of like, but, but I'm more in the state, you know, for so many years now, like that. It's just, it's like you said, it's, it's, it's about the bigger picture. It's about all of it and not just one aspect of it. So even if it's just to go and hear some music for a little while and have a glass of wine. Yeah. And for sure. There's nights where I want to dance more than others. There's spin nights. Where like right where you just have right you're in the mood you're like I want to go out and I just want to dance all night right and okay that's fine and and then there's some nights and of course if that's how you're right that's the mood you're in a particular night and you don't get to dance yeah you know that'll be I think I missed the night you came back from Annapolis I think it was one of your first times back and you went to A and M and I believe Sharon was there I think I was away and I remember she told me like holy shit (laughs) Oscar was fucking bananas. Like he was either dancing or chatting or drinking. Not that you don't normally do all those things, but like, you know, on high, on like 2.0, because you'd been, you know, in Annapolis, you know, working and getting acclimated and then not much tango in DC area for you to, for commute wise, you have to work so early in the morning. You're not going out as much. I'm not saying there's not a lot of deep tango in dc but so, I'm just so saying, that's actually for your one of schedule. the things that i've had I've, this has been hard for me because i feel like in dc people are like what you're describing of it's a well very most much places a, people are like that yeah i like i but i haven't really found a place in dc that is not like that yet right so like i've gone to a couple of milongas and he people don't sit down seriously like they they will finish a tanda and they'll like walk and find somebody else to dance with and they like they're back on the dance floor before the next tanda has started uh and so i've I've been to a couple of those and i'm just sitting there like i just this is so intense this this is too much yeah Yeah. way too much um not just that then there's no chance of of meeting people right there's there's not a lot of uh, and then you also don't want to meet them. You're like, well, if if you're like this, <laughs> I I like I don't really, yeah. Uh, you don't you don't give off the vibe of you're somebody that's like fun to hang out with. Uh, and maybe they are, right? That I'm not saying that that yeah. right that my just by watching how they behave in longer that that's a foolproof way of deciding whether they're interesting people or not, but it's just, it doesn't lend itself to, uh, to hanging out. No. And no, so it's that's... just a bit, eh. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, I have to drive there. I have to get there and, and to just dance nonstop for, eh. Yeah. yeah and sometimes it's... I'll do it, but, but like you have to be in the mood for that. Yeah. I think. Oh, for sure. And I think it, 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 it is a, it is very intense and it's also intense to be around because I, I think for my first year or two, I was like that, you know, I would, I would, cause I wanted to learn and I wanted to get better fast. And I knew that this was where I would, I didn't have a partner back then. I didn't have anybody to practice with. So yeah. you know, going to be long as dancing as much as possible, but then it just got to the point where I, it, yeah, I stopped having fun because I put so much pressure on this expectation of doing that one thing the whole time. 
And I was also realizing that I'm here with all these amazing people and they're interesting and they're cool and they're very different. Um, so just having time to get to know people that normally I probably wouldn't have the opportunity to meet became a new, a new reason to go out and, and to hang out at the Milongas. And then that helped me relax about feeling this sort of, but I think there's a lot of people who are, you know, introverted, socially awkward. That's why they gravitate towards tango. So yeah. they can be social, but they don't actually have to be uncomfortable trying to chat or talk. Um, and so yeah, it serves so, them. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's definitely true. I, I think I was lucky in that. Um, like the people that I became friends with, like right off the bat, right when we, you know, got into tango with Manu, uh, were not only uh, like social, but they were also very good dancers. Hmm. Right. So, like I've told you, you know, many times how awesome I think Sarah was, for example, with me. That I started dancing, and Sarah would dance with me all the time. Mm -hmm. Or she would call me up and she's like, "Hey, there's a practice. Do you want to go?" And right, like Sarah's been dancing for what twenty five years, thirty, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And I've been dancing for a couple of months and she'd be like, let's go to practica. <laughs> and I'd be like, are you sure you want to go with me? <laughs> right. Where I'm like, Oh, Oscar course. with and a like, K, I'm... not Oscar with a C. You got the right number. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm like, I'm not going to say no to that. Right. But, right. but, um, right. But like the, the people that I'm friends with, uh, that I met through tango also happen to be, uh, very good tango dancers. So I think that I was getting that and, and maybe I would have felt more pressure, right? Or, or maybe I would have felt more uh, insecure, right? Uh, otherwise, but like I was dancing with really good dancers right off the bat. Mm -hmm. I, I am aware that they were just being nice, <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, they were, right? So, so you were like, Sarah was uh, really awesome. You and Chico, right? Also, Sergio, right? So, so all of that. I remember when I went to Buenos Aires, and I've been dancing for three months. And Sergio was like, "Let's go to the milongas. Let's go to classes." And I would go to classes, and he's like, "Look, if if you can't like pack it, I'll be your partner. Don't worry about it, right?" Yeah. And so we'd go to the classes, and then we'd go out, and Sergio would call up his friends, and he'd be like, "Look, he's my friend. He's from New York. He's been dancing for like you know two months." So. And they would dance with me. And right, and these are like, you know, his friends who, who live off of this. They're professional dancers. They go off on, on tour, right? And, right? and so I'm in Buenos Aires and I'm dancing with them. I remember the very last night uh, that we were there, Sergio. So we're at the table, right? I'm, I know that I can ask them to dance and they'll dance with me. And then uh, Sergio told all of them, he said, don't say yes. If he asks you to dance, don't dance with him. And he was like, look, you've been here for, for you know, a few weeks you have to dance with somebody. You have to kind of sell someone in Buenos Aires. Like you uh. can't leave without having that. He's like, it's going to take you all night. Most people are going to say no. <laughs> he was like, this is not like, go do it. It's like, this is going to be tough. He's like, but you have to do it. Like you have to go and you have to get rejected and you have to. And so sure enough, and, but I did. I kind of said, they danced with me and I danced <laughs> in Buenos Aires. Like, I'm for real it's like obviously like you've been dancing so far but, but it's you know fake uh, they're, they're dancing with you because but you have to go out and actually do it yeah um but that for example gave me like 
right, you know, the, you know, Sarah teases me and calls me a list Oscar because whenever like performers came, I would just ask them to dance. Hmm. And I would tell them, I'd go up to them and I would be totally afraid. I was like, look, I'm a dancer, but you're, you know, as a dancer, I would love it if you, uh, if you dance. And they would say yes. Like they actually. <laughs> <laughs> and, is that, and is that because you have an enormous set of balls or because you're just completely unaware? <laughs> or no, is it the but, same but, thing? <laughs> I mean, no, I don't think I was unaware because I made sure to tell them, right? So one of the things that I made sure was I, I didn't want it to be false advertising, right? So I, I right, just flat yeah. out tell them like, hey, I've been dancing for five months. Uh, can you, right? It's like, I mean, the worst thing they're going to say to me is no, which yeah, true. if I don't ask them, I'm already not going to dance with them. If I ask <laughs> them, the worst thing that happens is what would happen. Still don't dance with them, yeah. Them, so who cares? <laughs> um, but surprisingly, they would say yes. Hmm. Or maybe not surprisingly, right? Uh, because, right? Okay, the the worst thing that happens is okay. It's a not a great time for them, but it's not like that's the last time they're like of their lives, dance. yeah. Unless it was before coronavirus, then you would have really started them off uh, on a yes. terrible journey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so I slowly but surely like got to dance with just amazing, <laughs> uh, amazing, amazing dancers. Uh, now that I, you know, I've been dancing for a few years, I like actually want to dance with them again because I think, it, right, like it was like, oh, if I dance with Guillermina now, that would be so much more amazing because, you know, part of it of being a beginner is not only that you can't, you know, do a lot of things, but you also can't appreciate a lot of things. Yeah, no, that's right? true. So, so like I think about it, I'm like, oh my god, if I uh, yeah. love to like dance with Guillermina again because like my appreciation of her, like is right it's another level because i understand it differently now than i did you know two years ago or three years ago that was that's interesting so, uh a colleague of mine a long time ago we were at a festival and i was new to the teaching community teaching festival so i was dancing with everybody because i wanted to i felt like very self-righteous like i already should give back and you know all that idealistic shit yeah and my buddy who's he's cool he's not like a snobby guy or anything but he's just he only danced with like two other teachers that were there and he just hung out and but he's i've learned over the years that that's just he's just chill like he's not he's not on the floor but at one point during the night or during the weekend i was like yo why aren't you you know why aren't you dancing with more of the regular people like the locals it wasn't a big festival it was pretty obvious he was like and he said he's like they're not going to understand anything i'm offering them they're not going to appreciate it he's like i don't want to waste my time and my body and it sounded really snobby at the time but i over the years i've i've really started to like understand it's like i've danced with people you know since then and, and recently and then over the years that are newer and they'll like after after the first song they'll look at me and be like i have no idea what's happening right now <laughs> <laughs> and i'm just like what am i doing here like <laughs> you know i guess i should lead the ocho cortado a hundred times like yeah I, i'm not trying to make any sort of judgments right now i'm just saying that if i were to lead steps they were familiar with and they would understand it and they would get it and they would perhaps appreciate it but i've had experiences where i'll be dancing and i'll be trying to just do what i do and and people are just like i have no idea you know and then you're just like well why am i doing this like i should dance with somebody who understands what the f it's like having a conversation it's like why am i talking to people that don't agree with me or will never understand me or why like i'd much get i'd get much more out of this you know if i could grow from it myself as well and, and explore something with another human who gets where i'm at and i get where they're at 
So I, I get what you mean about like, as you get, you know, more experience and, and like better, you know, you're, you're like, Oh, this is what they had to offer me back then. I, no, I no, I and, do. And, but I, I, for example, see it, uh, because I've read like, I've been dancing, for example, like with you or with Chico since I started dancing, mm -hmm. right? Or with Sarah. And so like, I can, I can even tell that, right? Like the way I experience dancing with Chico now or the way I experience dancing with Sarah now is totally different from the way I experienced dancing with them, right? Like two years ago or three years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, right, obviously it's more fun. I hope that it's more fun for them. <laughs> uh, um, if not, it's Chico's fault since she's actually taught me tango part. So <laughs> no, but right, but like I, I obviously, um, right, like I can, I can tell, right. I experience it differently already, right, mm -hmm. and I, I can see the ways in which uh, I experience it differently. But, but part of it, right, and and that's why we practice everything, and why, right, no one, no one who's good at anything uh, doesn't practice it. Is that it's, it's just it's freeing uh part of it is just freeing your brain to be able to think about these things right because a lot of movements or a lot of of um things that you need to be able to do with your body start becoming second nature right so i remember like as a quick example i remember the very first time i led chico uh a barita mm -hmm. And I let it, and then she did it back. Uh -huh. But I wasn't, like, I wasn't on my axis. I nearly fell, <laughs> right? Because, right? Because, because for me to do that, like, I would have had to, right? Like, it's not second nature, right? So I would have had, like, I had to readjust my body. And, and the whole adjustment was something I had to think about. My body did not do it automatically, uh -huh. right? Now, right, when I think of, like, I'm, like, Right now I'm on my axis more naturally and it's not something I have to think about. Right? right. So it's also a thing of like when I lead certain things or when I dance certain things or when I follow and, and I follow less. So that's obviously a lot, you know, more rusty and, and there's a lot, it's a lot clunkier, but, uh, right. Like the position that the, like the body ends in is a position it should be in. Right. Yeah. But you don't have to think about it anymore. Right. Yeah, so you yeah. just stand there and you're standing already naturally fine. Right. Uh, so then it's it just happens, and, and and there's there's less like oh shit I got caught with my pants down. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but that's just training, right? That's just you have to go out and dance and fall, and 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 your body kind of has to you know figure itself out and. and yeah, and I mean you you got to learn the the order of of things in the in the struck in the chronology of the movement. You know, like this yeah. before this before this. Because sometimes we, you know, we we try to do without realizing it. We try to do all of it at one time. Exactly. Because we see somebody do it, and you're like, "Oh wow!" And and you you don't realize what you're you're seeing until you've studied it and mastered it. So it looks like they're doing something all at once, but really, the, you know, we're doing something in increments. Yeah. And that's why it, it works all at one time, sort of. But it's not literally like you're stepping and doing a burrito and trying to maintain your axis and lead your partner all at the same time, you know? Yeah. But that comes and, through. Yeah. And it becomes something that you don't have to think about, right? Like if you have to think about it, you just, you won't be able to do it in time, right? If, if you had to consciously think through all of that, yeah, right? You wouldn't, you just, you wouldn't do it in time to the music, right? Your brain has to think about it. Then it has to like, 
right? Yeah. You have to do it enough times that it just gets done, right? So that when you take a step, you land already. Yeah. Uh, and you're on your axis when you land. If you have to land and then think about whether you're on your axis and readjust and everything by then. Yeah. Where is there? Is your music playing right now? I didn't even realize. <laughs> it. Uh, <laughs> right. And then if you try to lead something to your partner and they, you know, for whatever reason, uh, either they don't land perfectly and then like you're just right. If it's all a bit shaky. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I mean, but the only way to do that is practicing. And the only way to practice is to have people dance with you. Right. And yeah. So, and, and in that sense, you know, cause I, I don't always believe my opinions a hundred percent in that sense, it is beneficial to dance people with people that are at a better level, even if you can't appreciate it because they're able to take care of things that you're not able to take care of. So for example, if you're a beginner dancing with another beginner, you're not going to get nearly as much out of it as you would dancing with somebody at a higher level. Even if you don't realize what the fuck they're doing at that level, as people have, have said to me, like, Oh, I don't know what's happening right now. Um, because they're able to at least physically move in a way that they will be moving in a couple of years from now at that moment. Cause the, the, the follower or leader is, is actually taking care of that for them. You know what I mean? Yes. You know, so you're, you're teaching through physical muscle memory in, in a way, which is, is, is extremely important. This is why I think that having a beginner, which it, it is this way, but it's sometimes not advantageous. If all the students in a beginner class are beginners, it's like all of the people trying to save each other from drowning or drowning. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a you bit know, it's of like, the blind leading the blind. Yeah. Uh, so I think the the other thing with with dancing, uh, with uh, more advanced dancers is, I think you get a a sense for like the the body tone, right? Because mm. you're holding on to them and they just right their yeah the, yeah that's true. The, their posture and 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 their the tone of their muscles is is very different. Um, mm-hmm. And so you get a sense for what it is that you're supposed to, to feel, right? Yeah. And, and I, I remember when I started dancing and one of the things that like I would get scared shitless dancing, uh, you know, with Sarah or Chico or whatever is that they're on their axis, but, but they also feel like they're just so much more present, hmm. right? But, but right like i couldn't tell that difference so i i would I, like i was just like oh my god like i there's just too much like <laughs> yeah uh and right with but that you're not gonna get dance with another beginner right like that you're gonna have to get by dancing with somebody who right, has been dancing for a I while i had the hardest time when i was a newer dancer dancing with a higher level dancer because they were so present and so grounded that to move them it felt to me like i was moving like a truck and i was i remember saying to people i'm like this is a good dancer like they don't move like shouldn't they not need to be led you know shouldn't they be this or this or that or all this other dumb shit i thought um and really it's just about how you have to indicate ahead of time what you want to propose and then they move like effortless oh my god yeah you know but if you're if you're like (laughs) not basically if you're not able to convey the message ahead of time properly they're not going to move because they're not going to move blind nobody with any sense of dance is going to move without knowing what's going to happen next except a newer dancer (laughs) 
<laughs> well, you know? or or what what they do, and I think this is you know when I think about like when I think like okay, what things used to scare me, or 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 why was it that it felt so weird, right? As I tried to understand uh, how I have improved or 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 changed, is that when they do take a step, whether you've led it properly or not, and they're like, okay, I'm going to take the step, right? You take it with your body, your body moves. And so, right. you know, what, what ends up happening with beginners is that you don't, you don't move your body, you move. And so they end up taking you with their momentum. Yeah. Right. So you feel like, like you're getting thrown power. around. <laughs> exactly. And, and I think this is a sensation of like, it's too much body or right. This, this yeah. is a sensation of like, they feel like, but they're so present or whatever. And it's simply that they're just moving their body and mm-hmm. because that's not how you start dancing. Right. Or, or at least how I, I started, right. My, the sensation is always like, of course they, if they move their entire body, they're moving more mass. Yeah. And so they're going to have more momentum, which means that they're going to just throw you around. Um, yeah. Because, because you're, you're not moving that way. And so every time you lead something, it feels like, they're going so much more than what you led, but it's simply that they're just moving with their whole body. And they are uh, going so much more because of that. <laughs> and, and so yeah, as a result, they're, they're like, Oh shit. <laughs> um, yeah, that's true. But how long have we been going? Uh, well, I would say about an, I would say at least an hour. No, in terms of uh, when this thing is going to cut off again. Oh, well, let's see. Um, I would say 30 minutes or so, maybe even longer. Yeah. We might want to, we could probably wrap it up soon. Um, Do you want to, do you want to like hang up and do, uh, one more set? If you have time. Sure. If not, we could always continue later since I'm not going to post this right away. I'm going to actually have another one. I'm going to post tonight. I'll probably post this one in like a week or two. So I could always call you back in a few days and we could finish up or, you know, whatever you feel like. Well, what, why don't you call me back in like five minutes? All right. I'll just save this. It takes a few minutes to save it, and then I'll call you back. Okay. All right. Bye. Well, as you can see, that was our second interruption. And so we're going to continue with the third part of the series on economics and all of Oscar's brilliant wisdom. And I don't mean to sound sarcastic. He's actually a super intelligent guy. Um, so enjoy the third part, everybody. Hello. Check, check. You are dressed differently. Yeah, it's cold in here, man. Our heat doesn't go on sometimes during the day. Um, so the last thing, I guess. Man, you know, I can't drink right now. Why? Because I just don't. I, I never drink at home. It just feels weird. And I'm always at home, so <laughs> I don't know. Might have a beer later, but yeah, I just I, I'm very I'm a social drinker, you know. So it's just well, so I've been I've been drinking a lot of wine because I love like when I'm cooking. Yeah, that's a nice. I do, I'll say wine. I do that sometimes. Yeah, but I also cook all the time now. So if I was doing that, I would be. Yeah, no, I, I obviously <laughs> don't do it every time because I, I cook all the time. But I've been doing. Um, well, I've been doing that. Mm-hmm. So I've been, I mean, what else am I going to do? I'm alone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's, are you doing a lot of, uh, 
phone calls, calling a lot of people? I've been talking to people I haven't spoken with in a long time. Uh, so I've, I've been, I mean, I, I'll talk to my parents like twice a day mm-hmm. also to check, you know, in on them and, and what's going on. Um, yeah, there, there's people I talk to, um, but it's the same people that I talked to before anyway. So it's not like I'm, I'm, I'm talking to new people. Mm-hmm. So I'm not. I don't think I'm talking on the phone necessarily more than I was before. Did you actually probably only with my parents, right? Like I'm, I never I don't think I've talked on the phone in like 7 years. <laughs> before now. Pro- so so probably part of the issue is because I moved to Annapolis, right? Oh, yeah. And all of my friends are in New York. So you're already in quarantine. <laughs> Basically, right? Like I've already been uh communicating with my friends long distance. Yeah. So given given this, so now you're just on holiday from work. <laughs> I'm working. I'm working from. No, home. I know. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, that's actually one of the nice things, right? Like I can do research, hmm. or like if I was a, I don't know, biochemist or something. Yeah. Right. Or, or something that requires you to be in the lab. Right? Yeah. Like that you know, teleworking is you know, kind of difficult. But you know, for economics and for what I do. I can just right. I can work from home. I can do research at home and and write papers at home. And so that's really nice that I can actually not do part of my job. I can do all of my job here. That's good. Uh, so that's nice. And luckily, uh, this thing hit uh, enough months after I moved here that I've kind of set up. Uh, that I'm set up exactly. Yeah. Like I have my desk. I have my you know, all of my computer screens, like I've got everything. So I don't have to, I don't even feel right. Like I don't have the right equipment or I don't feel like it's uncomfortable or so that's that's good. That's That's good. I think we're in for a long haul with this thing. Oh yeah. It's going to be, well, how long did it take China? Uh, Well, I think it's still taking four months, you know, but it took them to get four months to get to zero uh, uh, local transmission cases. So they've had three days of that, and that took four months. Hmm. Um, yeah, so. I'm glad I started saving money a few years ago. That's all I can say. But Sharon's working her tail off because she works for New York Cares, and they are considered one of the essential people in this fight right now because of all the volunteer work they organize. Yeah. Um, so the last thing I wanted to bring up, because you're – this is your main thing, not not working at a, a, a military academy or dancing tango, but you're an economics professor and doctor of economics. And for the layman like me and lay people out there, can you tell us what it is your area of expertise is, is about in uh, five words or less? <laughs> <laughs> Let's get economical. <laughs> um, so... I I basically study how the scarce resources of the brain Hmm. lead to decisions that are not quite fully rational and the implication of that for macroeconomics. Wow. Um, So to give you a sense of... Scarce resources of the brain. Yep. 
Is that because we don't use our full potential of our brain or is that just no because it's because it's just... a it's a it's a limited it's a finite thing i mean so the right so i i think that there's a big misconception about what economics is uh i this is one where like i actually think it's economists fault but i think economists have misrepresented what we do and i think that that's part of the reasons why people uh, don't have an understanding of what economics is, right? So, you know, economics is a science of choice. Right? That's what e economists study. Um, and the only reason why choice is a, is something that's interesting or, or worth studying is because of scarcity, right? If there were no scarcity, there would be no need for choice. You would just have everything you wanted. <laughs> okay. You wouldn't have to choose anything. You would just have whatever it is that you wanted, right? And so there, there, there will be no need to, to make choices. Hmm. But the nature of the universe that we inhabit is one in which, right? There's a finite amount of everything. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a finite amount of energy. There's a finite amount of you know, mass and all these things, which means that however you think about this, uh, you have to, right? You have to make choices. You have to make, you know, trade-offs. And that's what economists study. And basically economists start from the principle that people have objectives and they're trying to achieve these objectives within a scarce right reality that's basically all of economics boiled down to right um, and so we study right these these things in different contexts one of the things that that you know, and this is a relatively recent thing in economics is, and, and as a result of advances in neuroscience and, and psychology and other fields, is that our understanding of the brain has increased a lot. And, and one of the things that we have to think about is that the very act of making a choice is in fact, uh, a problem that is related to scarcity. Right? So in, in you know, classical economic models, right, you, you have the set of alternatives, right? You have the, right, your set of, of what you prefer the most. And then among the set of alternatives that are available to you, you're gonna pick the alternative that you prefer most, right? Over all the other. Uh, but what that, implicitly assumes is that that whole process of you going through a set of alternatives you figuring out which one is right that that, that is costless right and we act as if that had no scarcity associated with that mm. but that itself is a process that ex that occurs under scarcity because that is something that you have to internally decide right and you your brain is finite which mm -hmm. means that that process is itself an economic problem uh-huh and if we think about that process as an economic problem, it means that then the secondary process of then the choices that you make based on that are going to be subject to the scarcity, right? Exactly. Right. That you, that you so if you exhaust it. yourself coming up with the decision, once you make the decision, you're even more exhausted. So, um, so, the, so the thing, for example, so yeah, so if that's a trade-off, for example, it, one of the things that may come out of this is that if I observe your decision, 
and I am not aware of the fact that one of the trade-offs that you face is, is exhaustion, for example, mm-hmm. whether it's because of you know, thinking or, or whatever, however you want to think about this, is that if I have all of the information and I look at your thing, I might say, oh, people aren't rational. And, and people say this all the time. Well, no, but people aren't rational. The economists are idiots because they think that people are like, rational and we're not. Actually, if you think about the fact that choices themselves are an economic problem, hmm. then it's not that people aren't rational, is that one of the you know, uh, margins on which you are being rational is on your condition. margin of brain. Like, you know, yeah, I mean, and you're based on, it's based on your condition that you're in to begin with, right? So you might, you might choose something that if I were to look at it after the fact, it might look like you made a mistake, mm-hmm. but it's in fact not a mistake, right? Because you made a rational decision to stop maybe looking for better alternatives because the costs of looking for these alternatives, whether it's time or whether it's right, mental resources or whatever, it's just not worth it to you. Right, right. Right? And so it's, it's not that you made a mistake, right? Is that we need to understand better uh, the fact that you know, choices themselves are not frictionless and that the act of choosing is itself a process hmm. that is subject to scarcity. Right. Uh, and, and we want to. It's almost like it's, it's understanding way. in a way it's understanding that we can't assume that everybody's coming from every decision from the same starting point. Because. But, our our circumstances could already lead us to be making decisions. A a, a like you, it, uh, from what I think I understand is like some people are making decisions because they just find it economically not uh, viable to their goals. Like, well, let's just let me just you know throw this one away because like I don't need to waste my time thinking about it. Or or also what I'm thinking is like. We, we sometimes we, we see people make choices and we wonder why would they make that choice? Because we are almost assuming that we're all starting from the same baseline, but some people are starting from a baseline where they're already, you know, maybe they're mentally exhausted before they made that decision or they spent so much time considering how to make a decision that by the time they make a decision, that's a factor in, in why they chose to make that decision. Is that what you're sort of saying? Yeah. So there's, there's, that's part of, of this larger view. There's actually a guy at Harvard that, that does a lot of this and what he calls it is, he calls it scarcity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he talks about this feedback of how external conditions, right? Yeah. Exactly what you're s- describing. Put you in a place where now you're making decisions, but you're already in a different place than somebody else. So, so he looks at um, uh, things, uh, like poverty, right? And well, so that's what I was that One of the about. things that poverty, I figured that's why I, I mentioned him because so he says, look, one of the things that poverty might do to you isn't just that it's, uh, right, that you have less income, right, or less wealth. But the fact that you have less income or less wealth means that you have to think really hard about certain choices, right? Mm-hmm. Because you, you don't have a lot of room to make mistakes, right? Those mistakes are very costly for you, which means that, if you basically, right, if we think of the brain as being this finite thing, which of course it is, right, it means that if you spend your mental resources on these choices, then these other choices that you also have to make, you have basically 
less thinking power left, less cognitive uh, yeah. power left, and you're going to make worse choices. Well, that's why not I was because also... you're stupid, not because, of, but because literally you've just spent some of yeah. your cognitive capacity, yeah. right? And and so he's done some really interesting work on, so he's done it on the field where where they've looked at, for example, how uh, farmers make decisions like right before the harvest and right after, mm-hmm. right? So right before the harvest is when they have the least money, right? And right after the harvest is when and and they show that they actually make better decisions right after the harvest. Uh-huh. They did it actually this really, really cool experiment. I, I really love this experiment with college students. And the way that they made them poor was that they basically had these college students play a quiz. So it, it's like a quiz show. So you, you'll basically have two teams, but what they'll do, right? What you need in order to, to be able to play this quiz is really you need time, right? You need X amount of time to answer each question, right? But that's, that's basically like the endowment of resources. The more time you have, obviously, the more time you'll have to think and probably the, the uh, higher the chance of answering the question correctly. Right. So they will make one of the teams time poor. They'll give one team less time than they'll give the other team. Hmm. And one of the things that they will do is that this time poor team, one of the things that they allow them to do is borrow time. So if you run out of time in to answer a particular question, they will let you borrow time from questions further ahead. Ooh. It's essentially like income. Right. Right. And what they show is that the, the teams that are time poor made these bad decisions. They'll borrow against future time. And then when the future arrives, they're out of they don't time. They're, yeah. and, and these, right. They're doing these things at Ivy league schools. These are not idiots. Right. And, and, and they show that they, they say, look, it's not because people are idiots or it's because, but rather because, right, you're, if, if you have to spend all the time thinking, right, in one dimension, it means that when, when it comes to other choices, you just, you've depleted your cognitive, yeah. you know, uh, your cognitive capacity. And so you're going to make, uh, does that mean that you're not rational? Not really, right? Like, what we're showing is people are, um, I, don't, I don't want to say we, we've shown this, right? I, I, because I, th- I think this is basically the working assumption of economics, um, right? That this idea that people are rational in the sense that they are trying to do the best they can given the constraints they face. Mm-hmm. So I find that very compelling, right? And that's why I'm an economist, for example, not a psychologist, right? right? Mm. Uh, or neuroscientist. But but I think that uh, certainly the way I view it is that we, we need to understand. To me, one of the most interesting things is that the very act of making choices, which up until basically the last twenty years we kind of just took as as this frictionless thing, um, that act is itself uh, right a problem that requires us to understand scarcity because the brain is a fixed thing; it's yeah. a scarce thing, and so that is going to lead. You know, to my mind, it makes choice so much more interesting, right? Because now you have these feedbacks of, right, your external constraints may, in fact, impact, right, how much cognitive capacity you have, which affects your choices and, and so on and so forth. And, and this is also why I, I, could, I thought of poverty to begin with, because when you're, it's also relatable to, you know, drugs or alcohol or things like that, anything that impairs your ability to think, because if you're a homeless person, if you're impoverished, if you're not, if your diet and your intake is not, 
sustaining you, you're already coming from a depleted starting point. You're making decisions starting from a place that maybe if you were in a better situation, you would have a less finite brain capacity. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm not saying that so, so, eating so well I, makes you smarter. I'm saying that. <laughs> I'm saying that. No, so I, I know what you mean. Uh, and I certainly think that this is like those particular questions are, are for sure of interest to some economists. Those are not the questions that are of interest to me. But would you think that, like, for example, if, if we were to give homeless people free housing, do you think that that in turn would help them make better decisions because they would have less to, they would have a more time to consider making best. They would have more time to make better decisions about other things because they would have less burden of the moment to think about like, where do I get this? Where do I get that? Yes. So yeah. for sure. But, but for, I'm more interested in that mm -hmm. than whether, uh, Again, not to say that that's, I don't think that, that might be a thing, but I'm more interested in that than, than the channel of, well, if, if we give them, right, if you give somebody calories, now their brain capacity has, it, has actually increased. I don't think it's I'm increased. I just in, think they have more energy to make decisions, you know? Yeah, right. Like, I'm more interested in, like, doing analysis saying, okay, let's, let's assume that, that this is all the same, uh -huh. right? but that the, the usage of it, right, is if, again, but that's just an interesting, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Of course, there's you know health economists and and who would be totally interested in, in, in these questions. Because we we make decisions in certain moments when we've been drinking, you know, doing other drugs and other things like, um, and again, it's because in that moment our brain is just exhausted or it's unable to focus or whatever, and it's directly related to external influences that we've brought into our body you know yeah but again so the, the thing with that is that that is literally diminishing brain capacity right yeah as opposed to saying that that right, which is a different question than than saying assuming that we all have the same brain capacity right how will we allocate right our cognitive capacity mm -hmm. given right the choices that we're faced with right i right, yeah i find that a more interesting question yeah yeah right? Sure. Let me assume that we all have the same, right? Um, and let's see how putting, right, or, or another way to put it is think of a single person. And I want to understand how if I take a single person, but I change their circumstances, right? Given that now they have a different choice context, right, that they face, how their decision, right, whether or however you want to think about this, right? But how basically the, the way that they decide to allocate their cognitive resources, which are finite, leads them to, to change the pattern of their decisions, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, can we explain things like choice reversals, right? How can you suddenly choose something that you hadn't chosen before, that you could have chosen before, if I suddenly change the context? Well, maybe that has to yeah. do with the fact that if I, that, right, if, if I change the context, it, it means that I will change the way that you, allocate your cognitive resources and therefore you're going to pay attention to different things right you're mm -hmm. going to uh think differently uh, about something and you're gonna make different decisions which again if we thought that this process of making choices was just you know for free 
these things might seem and, and seem for a while. And, and when this evidence started piling up, economists were puzzled by this, you know, they, they seem irrational, right? They seem like people are, are just behaving bonkers uh, as opposed to, no, they, this is actually just the result of the fact that people are trying to be efficient, but we need to realize that a big part of how efficient you are, in fact, has to do with thinking about things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's almost like what you said about dancing, that uh, the more experience you have, the more practice you have, the less you're in your head about it, the more you're able to be present. You know, when you mentioned the burrita, the burrita and, yeah, yeah. you know, you're not, in no, that, yeah. I mean, you know, so that's where, you know, you're being economical about how you're using your brain time in that moment because you've already experienced it enough to not have to be sitting there thinking about it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And, Which and is why we practice anything. One of the really cool things, so I was at this conference last, uh, last summer and uh, there were a bunch of neuroscientists and, and you see some of the research that they're doing and it's just fascinating to see uh, like all the things that the brain does. Uh, and not just that, but also that you, you, like, this is very much evidence that, yeah, of course, but like these processes are not only are they finite, but they take time. Yeah, they, right, in the brain, we're, we're measuring this in terms of, you know, milliseconds, but they still take time. So mm-hmm. they, they were showing things, for example, uh, so the simplest maze that a, that a rat could possibly solve is just walking a straight line. Right. right. So when you think of like the simplest maze, literally, I just walk to the door. And right, and they'll have rats do this, right? They'll they'll walk. Rat just walks in a straight line to you know get the cheese or whatever. And so they look at the neurons that light up as the as the rat literally walks across space to get this cheese. And they they show and they've seen uh, in these rats that the before the rat actually starts moving, the same neurons light up, hmm. but super quickly. So basically, the rat like envisions this whether it does it consciously or not, right? I, I don't, but the neurons light up. <laughs> so it's like the brain basically rehearses what it's about to do and then it does it. Hmm. So that's a, that's, that's interesting. There's, you know, the, I don't know if this is, I'm, it, to me, it sounds very similar. There's, there's something called Feldenkrais. Have you heard of this? It's like a physical discipline, but it's very, it's very relaxed. You generally, you do it on the floor. Um, and it's about, it's, it's, I don't know what to call it. It's like physical therapy, maybe, but I don't know. I, I, for people that are listening that do it, I probably sound like a total idiot, but I've only done it a few times, but what, what a lot of it, what, uh, what we do in it a lot of times is you actually just visualize what they're asking you to do. Like roll your, sh- don't move, but ro- imagine you're rolling your shoulder around in a circle. Yep. You know, and you do it, you do that for a while and then like you'll get up and you'll physically feel you know, yeah. different sensations, you know, it's very fascinating. Um, Sharon's really into it. And um, I've done a few classes and, 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 and you do a lot of movement as well, but it's very gentle movement, but um, it's interesting how they really make you think through it before you do anything. Uh, and you're, you're sort of like, yeah, using that part of your brain to, I try to bring that up and dance a lot. I say like, imagine what you're doing before you do it. Because so when that's I, what we've studied a thousand times, which is why we can execute it so well, you know. Yeah. When when I was uh, when I used to Cox for you know the week before the boat race uh, when I was in England, uh, 
right? We're all, uh, we moved down to London two weeks before and we're in a hotel. Uh, and one of the things that we did about three times uh, was this, the coach would have us visualize portions of the race. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, he's like, look, a lot of research has shown that this is as if you had practiced it. <laughs> yeah. And like now we're right. The neuroscientists are showing us that that's in fact what the brain does. So, so to the extent that you're practicing firing up this neurons right before doing something, that's still going to be beneficial. And so right. he would literally ask us, he said, he would say, what is a, what is a, a scenario that you want to be prepared for? Right. The, and then he would narrate it. Like he would like, we would lie on the floor. He would close like all of the blinds. It would be dark. He would say, close your eyes. And he would literally start like it's story time. He would say, okay. And he would narrate the race, blah, 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 the whole thing. And he would start describing that scenario. Um, And we did that a few times. And yeah, for sure. I mean, Obviously, you, you can't, right? That's totally unscientific. That's totally anecdotal. But to, I certainly felt more prepared having done it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and right, he's a coach and he clearly has, you know, paid attention to this. And if he's deciding to, to spend time on this, he probably has. No, I would agree in my punch. own experience. Like if I watch people warming up before a class, we'll say, well, Chico and I play music and we'll be like, all right, warm up. And we'll kind of watch. And, you know, sometimes we're just like, what? in the fuck is you know and then afterwards we'll be like okay think about every time before you do something i want you we want you to pause think about what's going to happen and then execute it and even as you know now that i think about it even when you're in a class and you're studying a pattern or studying a musicality with a pattern you're dancing you're using your brain from a place where you're you're designing it ahead of time you know you're not just reacting in the moment so that rat those those neurons that were firing off in those moments, we're doing that in this. And I guess what we're trying to do is make it more efficient. We're trying to do it in a shorter and shorter amount of time. Yeah. And ideally, right, I think that's one of the, the things that practice allows you to do. Hmm. And now this is conjecture because I'm not a neuroscientist. So <laughs> uh, that that presumably it allows right your brain to, to light up these, you know, fire up these neurons faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, at this point, I'm just conjecturing because I, <laughs> I do not know that that's what the research says. And, and as a scientist, I, I'm, I'm always very careful to, yeah, to not sure. lay claims to things yeah, yeah, that yeah. I don't know about, uh, which sometimes people find very frustrating. They'll be like, well, why don't you tell me like the answer? Like, because I, I can only tell you to the best of my knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, well, how good is it? Well, I don't know. That's, that, that's all I can tell you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, to the best of my knowledge, I think this is right. Um, I, you know, if you find it useful, you find it effective, you know, good, go for it. But, but I'm not a scientist either. So, I mean, you're a scientist, I, but I'm not a scientist at all. I was about to say, not either. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I tell my students, so this is one of the things when I, when I teach them, I, I tell them all the time, like, guys, one of the things that I, I really want you to walk away with. So, I teach macroeconomics. Um, and at the beginning of, of, uh, the semester, I was telling them, I'm like, there's three things I want you to learn in this class. I want you to think critically. I want you to uh, communicate effectively. 
and I want you to become scientifically literate. I want you to understand what it means, right? When scientists speak, I want you to be able to understand. It doesn't mean you have to be an expert in the field, but you need to understand the language of science. And so I'm like, and we're going to learn those things by doing macroeconomics, right? So macroeconomics will be the excuse, right, <laughs> that we use to learn these things. But these are the things you need to learn. I was like, because I, I don't care if, you know, a year from now, two years from now, or, you know, you're on an aircraft carrier, you remember that if the Fed lowers interest rates, right, that you should expect GDP to fall or, or go up or whatever it is, right? That I'm less interested in. What I would like them to be able to walk away with is can they think critically, right? Can they approach a problem mm -hmm. and be able to break it down and be able to break it down, right, intelligently? Or can, right, when, when somebody makes claims, can they <laughs> assess whether those claims make sense or or and also do it in, a, in a, an efficient amount of time yeah so they're not and wasting their finite they, brain time exactly know? and then can they explain that to somebody else right can they be effective communicators i told them right and and so all the time like i'll i'll present them with models and then i always tell them so is this true and then they're always like well yeah you just showed us and i'm like no data guys like science lives or dies by data <laughs> i can write any model i want and present it to you, sure. I was like, but the, the, right? ultimately in science, we, we come to know things because we figure things out empirically. That's the test in science, yeah. right? That's what science is relative to other fields of knowledge, right? In science, we know things because we use data. So whatever story I tell you, I was like, these models are just stories. Every time you guys have to tell me like, okay, well, where's the proof? Show us data. Show us, yeah, yeah. show us data that says, and, and I'll, I'll do a model and then I'll show them that it's like, this is clearly, this is not true. <laughs> and then they look at me like, what? what? I'm like, guys, you have to think critically. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do it on purpose because I want them to be, I'm like, there's a, it's not that they shouldn't believe anything, you know, you should, you, but you have to be skeptical and you have to figure out why you're skeptical and why it is that a claim, right, is something that you decide to either, you know, believe enough to act on it or, or, or discard it. And, you know, that, that lack of scientific literacy, for example, is, you know, a huge problem in our, like, public life right now. Right? That, that people uh, don't quite... Uh, understand that right and, and but at either end either either you see blind faith or you also see people who think that skepticism for the sake of skepticism is what science is which yeah. is also not true right, right. Uh, <laughs> you have to understand why right is there reason to be skeptical and if there is why it is that right it makes sense to be skeptical um but you also have to be able to to take information and decide oh actually no this is this does make sense um so I, I definitely, that's what I tried to write, to have them walk away with. I'm like, you know, at, at the end of the day, the Phillips curve, right? Like, it, unless you right, decide to actually become an economist, knowing these exact things is, is yeah, okay, you can read a newspaper and all this, but, but that's less important 
then how it's going to, you're going to, then can you understand and can you inhabit the world? Right? Yeah, exactly. How are you going to bring this into your day to day life? Yeah. So that's actually what we did on Friday. So we, we had the first lecture uh, when we met for the first time. I said, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do today. Uh, I was like, we are going to talk about what's happening right now and what the Congress is trying to do. And like the Fed is doing these things. And I'm sure you're reading all these things. Like we've actually done enough macro that we can talk about what's going on, but we're not going to talk about it the way the New York Times talks about it. <laughs> I was like, we're going to have uh, a, a more elevated conversation about this. Um, and I want you guys to think about what's going on through this lens. And it, was, it actually went really well. I was like, see, you guys can. Uh, so at the end of class, I was like, now go explain to your parents what's going on. <laughs> Wow, that's great. Um, I think that's all I have for now. <laughs> it's my first online interview, I think. Besides on Wednesday when we did the call-in thing. Oh yeah. So the uh, the idea I, I I gave you guys about telling stories. Mm -hmm just to again the, the whole uh science and being a scholar and, and giving credit where credit is due not only is that not my idea that idea was used during the black death so boccaccio but the cameron is essentially that right the cameron is the story of a hundred this book of a hundred stories that that starts with these uh uh italians running off to the countryside to escape the plague and they quarantine themselves and to pass the time there's 10 of them each of them tells a story every night for 10 nights and that's the cameron so that's where that idea came from great <laughs> <laughs> well we're going to continue with that idea i'm also going to structure we do, I'm going to talk with Chico after this, actually, because uh, we're going to try to figure out how to structure better the the flow of the of the night, so some people can. So we give everybody an opportunity to call in, and we don't let certain people, you know, go on a on little longer mic. than might needs to, might what might be beneficial to everybody listening, you know. But I think for the first round, it was okay just to let people, like you like you mentioned, it's like a lot of people at that moment we're needing a place to come and just interact and talk and let out some some stress yeah. and anxiety so you know that's fine and i wasn't really in a position to mediate at that moment i was just kind of trying to figure out how to make my microphone work and shit <laughs> <laughs> so but i think yeah coming moving forward we already have we are i already have chico and i already have some ideas we're going to talk later about about what else we want to do but i really like the call in idea i think it's nice to have like a an interactive moment. I, I mean, I've been seeing a lot one of, of the, that's one of the nice things of technology, right? That we yeah. can, right? what's the connected. point of having all of this if we can't use it, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's the point of, this is like the one thing of the future that actually came true, that, that the phone was going to become audio visual, mm -hmm. right? I remember when I was a kid and it was like, phones are going to be like TVs in the future. The flying cars didn't happen. The <laughs> teleportation. The self-driving cars are but, coming. 
but yeah. but the phones becoming right that you being able to see who you're talking to on the phone that part did become true and so it's like well what's the point of all of that if when you actually can use it you're not going to use it yeah and, you know i yeah i can see that people are anxious and people need to value to be um and some people are uh have have more avenues to do that right than others yeah and also because you know there's a lot of people more more than i think we're aware of who suffer from mental illness and mental problem mental issues and in this situation could really can really steer that off course a lot you know there's some people that were barely holding on before and like you know this could really And, and and not not just because of like the stress it adds but because it it depending on how this goes uh you know it also puts their treatment at risk yeah i mean there's a lot of uncertainty right now so can can you uh right like how is how is going to you know how does it work in terms of like going to your psychologist or psychiatrist right is is it necessarily the same thing to do it in person and to do it over the phone and maybe it is for some people but maybe for some people it's not or is it even safe? Um, I mean, going into those offices, you know, at this no, point, I imagine that those offices are closed, right? Yeah, yeah. They're, no, I mean, my, but my even in the, going into the future, it's like that they would, you know, they probably do something like this, right? Where they, they just telework it. But, mm-hmm. but for some people that may work for some people that may be less effective. Right. Um, that's actually like the one thing that even I feel now, and I don't mind being alone. But like I haven't touched another person since I was in New York, <laughs> right? And it's like you don't think about how often we actually do that. Whether it's like shaking someone's hand, right? Like, but but that happens in your day to day. Yeah. Uh, and like, I feel it. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's 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 a it's a weird sensation. Yeah, sure. Um, definitely. Like, your brain notices, right? Where it's like, it kind of says, hey, like, you are isolated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, even if I don't mind being alone, right? Like, it's, I don't, I don't have uh, this, like, solitude or whatever. Right? Like, I, I do find, and again, like we're talking with this technology, it's not like I actually am like cut off from the world. I can right. like, call, call and talk to people, but not actually like having any physical contact. Um, that definitely. Uh, yeah, I'm, I can definitely feel that. Yeah, there's yeah, I'm, that's another main concern I have because we all know a lot of people right now that are self isolated and. Yeah, that's tough. But hopefully, at least, hopefully, like, I'm thinking within the next week or two, if you've been quarantined, you know you're fine. You call somebody else who's been quarantined. Maybe you can go shake their hand. <laughs> Give them a hug or something. Because you know you're both safe. Uh, you know? Uh, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Right, like... I mean, I, I, and we don't, we just, I, I don't think we know this yet, right? But like my biggest worry 
is that people actually do not become immune if they've had it. Hmm. Yeah. Because if that's the case, you literally have to just isolate the people who have it. Like you have to find every single person who's had it, who has it and make sure that or, or it's just going to keep coming back. Yeah. Um, right. If, if herd immunity never builds up, if people don't become immune, like, and so I haven't read anything about, right. To the best of my knowledge, we just don't know yet. But yeah. Then, I don't know. Like, yeah, that's that scares me more than anything else. That if, if we do not become immune once we've had it, because then it doesn't matter, like whether you've had it or not, yeah, you're starting from scratch. Like you could always get it. Um, yeah. So that that actually is a thing that I find scary. You know, staying isolated, yeah, obviously it's not great, but um, but yeah, I just the task of of dealing with this if, if people don't become immune. That's scary. Well, I think that's a bright and happy way to end this. this I was just about program. to say, I was like, well, <laughs> on that <laughs> note, people. <laughs> well, no. I, I will say that I do have, um, I see children running around. I see my friend Adrian just had his second child the other day up in Norway. I look at history and I see what we've been through. And I am, oh, yeah. I'm optimistic that eventually this will be over i don't think we're going to spend the next 500 years looking at each other through oh, no, computer screens. I, I don't think so i, I think yeah it'll i take, don't think this is the edge of civilization but i think it'll be the long it might you know it'll take a little longer than we're i think even saying june july might be optimistic but but ultimately we will get through this yeah this this too shall pass mm-hmm. um so we're going to end there because crazy. that's optimistic, motherfucker. <laughs> I don't want to hear any more of your shit. <laughs> this too shall pass. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so thank you. And I'm going to air this in a few, probably in a week or two. So I'll let you know. Okey-dokey. But uh, be in touch in the meantime, if you want. Yep. Will do. All right, man. Thanks again. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Well, there we have it. Oscars Aria, everybody, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, this show was recorded just about a week or two into quarantine. And very, very quickly after, Oscar got sick with what we believe to be COVID-19 because he had all the classic symptoms. It took him several weeks. I think he's still he's still getting back on his feet. Um, so you've, you've just listened to the... To a real person having COVID nineteen, obviously before he knew he had it, but he was he was he was sick with it when he was giving me that interview. Um, that's the scary thing about this, is that we don't know until it's until it's too late. Um, but he is getting better. He is better, and so that's great, and we're all very grateful. Um, so thank you for being here, Oscar. Thank you all for listening. I will be back soon with my next episode. Until then, we have. Tango Cafe Takeout coming this Wednesday and look out for the new DJ series that I will be starting very shortly. Uh, Have a great day, everybody. Try to get some exercise in, get the blood moving. It'll definitely help us feel better. Bye-bye.